All right, so we're doing church history part two today. We are, yes. After our last episode on church history, I heard several people wanting more of that, which makes sense. People are always interested in church history, um, which they should be, because there's a lot to learn and a lot um, that can affect our church today and how we think about church based on church history. But it is also is kind of a difficult topic because it's more like there's a lot of just facts in church history. Mm-hmm. So like, I guess it's like less discussion oriented, definitely than like, like rule of life or oh, yeah. like any sort of more opinion or subjective. This is a lot more objective. So yeah, maybe people want that. Maybe people are tired of our discussions. <laughs> yeah. I don't care what you think. Just tell me the facts. Uh, maybe I've been worried, not worried, but one thing I was, it was on my mind lately is if uh, our podcast weakness is people not being able to distinguish our voices enough. <laughs> yeah. The more you listen, the more you'll know. I remember when I was younger, whenever somebody would call our house phone, whenever I would answer, hello, the first response on the other side was, Rhonda? (laughs) I was like, no, no, this is Paul. And then I remember one fateful day when I answered hello, and somebody said, Ralph? (laughs) I was like, yes. Wow. You can still remember house phones. Uh, Oh, yeah. I'm sure a lot of our... uh... Younger listeners won't remember that at That's all. Right. Won't be able to conceive of why would someone call you and not know who it was. Yeah. <laughs> we were in a hotel a couple of weeks ago. We met up with Christian, friend of the podcast, to go snow skiing. And uh, I was wanting to contact the front desk because the Super Bowl was on and I, I don't ever use TVs, so I didn't know how to find it. So I was like, oh, I'll just call the front desk and ask. And so they had like an old corded phone in the hotel room still. So I attempted to use that to phone the front desk, but I couldn't figure out how to do it. I just felt like so, uh, (laughs) it felt so foreign at this point. It's been so long since I've used a traditional phone. So I ended up just having to walk over to the lobby. (laughs) Wouldn't it be easier just to flip around the TV till you found it? I went through so many times that I could not find it. I went through all the channels like two or three times. Wow. Yeah. I haven't been anywhere in a while. Because you have a broken foot. Yeah. I can't even really leave the house. Especially when it was really cold and my little toes might freeze that are sticking out of the cast. I haven't actually heard how you broke it. Playing around on sleds. We went sledding and then got bored of the regular sledding. So we were trying to stand on it and then felt like I was going to fall. So I stepped off and my foot that I stepped off with basically like stuck into the snow while my other foot was still on the sled. And I, yeah, it just took this kind of awkward stumble fall. And I thought I heard like a noise, but Mm. then... The people I was with um, were kind of like, well, can you wiggle your toes? Okay, it does it hurt when you wiggle your toes? And it didn't, but it hurt really bad at first. But then, like, they asked me if I could wiggle my toes, and I could. And they're like, okay, it's probably a sprain. So I was like, okay. But then after a week, it was still, the swelling still wasn't all the way down. It was still, like, feeling like I couldn't put weight on it and stuff. And so... I like the that hospital. philosophy there, how, how different it is, like immediately. Oh, you know, you're oh, you're fine. You're fine. It's probably fine. It's just a sprain. I sprained my ankle in North Carolina this past summer and like everybody gathered around was like, you might be OK, but you got to go to the doctor. You need to get that x-rayed just in case you need to go to the doctor. Whatever you do, go ahead and go to the doctor. <laughs> Very different mentality here. Yeah, it really depends on who you're with, I think. Yeah, yeah. 
So after a week, I went to the hospital, but not expecting it to be broken. I because I felt like it was getting to where I could I could actually like gingerly walk on it, which mm. now looking back was not oh, good. Gosh. So I went to the hospital more to see if they could give me some kind of brace or something so that I could walk more safely. Um, mm. And then that's when they were able to uh, determine that it needed an X-ray and that it had a fracture and stuff like that. So now. They put a old fashioned, well, not old fashioned, but you know, like the hard colored cast. And the I don't have any kind of boot or anything to get around, but yeah, I've never had one on my leg before. Well, here we go. Getting into a conversation that the listeners don't want to hear. They want to hear the facts. That's right. They want to hear history facts. Let's get into history. So, people may remember we left off last time talking about Constantine coming to power and changing the fabric of Christianity in the Roman Empire. So I figured we could maybe start with Constantine today and fill in a little bit more about his journey and what society looked like during his reign. Yeah, I think for the just average Christian who's trying to kind of remember church history in their in their brain without being like a scholar or anything like that, mm-hmm. remembering Constantine is he's a really important character and that's like definitely the like first major shift in the church. Um, everything before Constantine is what we talked about last time. This for like apostolic church where there's a lot of letters, um, there's persecution and like the church is really spreading and growing. There's these people who knew the apostles and all. Uh, we talked about that last time. And so that's kind of the first era of the church. And then Constantine is what really starts this second main era. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good solid takeaway. And I actually feel like that's one of the takeaways I got from history way back in homeschool days. I feel like I always remember Constantine for some reason. As you should. As I should. It may have been because of the vision, his famous conversion story, which I thought might be fun to talk about as we start here. Yep. So Constantine was the emperor of Rome, which as a reminder, Rome like ruled the world at the time. Um most of the world. And so Christianity is growing underneath the Roman Empire, but there's a lot of emperors who um, are opposed to Christianity. And so that's why there's persecution uh, through the early church is because of that kind of setting. So then Constantine becomes the emperor and has this vision. Yeah, or right before he becomes the emperor. Okay. Actually, because the kingdom is divided, kind of split east and west. And so on the eve of the Battle of the Milvian Bridge is the famous moment where he's about to go into battle. This is, uh, there are conflicting accounts. So there's two chroniclers that talk about Constantine's revelation. One is Lactantius, um, and he says that it was a dream. Constantine was commanded to put the symbol of the Christian onto the shields of the soldiers. And then Eusebius, and both of these guys actually knew uh, Constantine personally, so pretty good source. Um, Eusebius says that Constantine had a vision in which in the sky the words appeared, in this you shall conquer. And then it was the Christian symbol, which is the Cairo. People might be aware of that. Um, It's the two Greek letters, Chi and Rho, which spells Christ. And so... 
which to us will look like a P and an X. Oh, that's why. I did not know that. I thought it was a cross that he saw. That was my understanding initially of it too, actually. So it's Kuro. It's a cross, but... Kairo. Okay. Like, because that's basically Kai is the C-H and then Ro is the R. So like Christ is Mm C-H-R to start with. Okay. So it's the first two letters in Christ or Christian. And if you go in any high churches today, you'll notice that symbol is still used widely. Well, even in like the Estes Chapel at Asbury, they have that symbol in a few places. You'll recognize it if you look it up, the Cairo, but it's like a capital P on top of an X so that the long part of the P goes down into the X, creating kind of like what looks like an asterisk. Mm -hmm. So either way, whether it was a dream or whether he had a vision where he saw stuff in the sky, he put this symbol on the soldiers' shields right before this big battle, and then they won the battle. Okay, so as Rome, they were fighting under the Cairo. To, like, unify Rome. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was Rome fighting Rome. It was internal dispute, but yes. And then after that, did Rome use that symbol to fight always? That's a great question. I don't know. I I don't know if he continues to always use that symbol. Maybe it was just a one-off. I don't think it was a one-off. I think that he used it in in uh, their military, uh, like as a military symbol for a while, but I could yeah, be wrong. Yeah, that's an interesting question. But that's the pivotal battle, the Battle of the Milvian Bridge that ended up leading to Constantine taking control of the whole empire. And right after that is when he issued the Edict of Milan. That was in 313. And that offered protection for Christians, freedom of worship and all that. So that was a huge shift. Yeah. So basically he sees this vision, which like connects him to Christianity. And so then he, after you know the next year, there's this law that you can't uh, persecute Christians. And there's a little bit of nuance in both of these things. Um, his faith journey is complicated because there's accounts after this of him still worshiping the sun doing pagan type things but he also has is very christian and doing very involved in the church so it's it's complex so is he kind of of the like add jesus to his pantheon sort of variety um there's some that think he just saw christianity as the best means of making the kingdom stronger Mm. but there's also some that would argue that he was actually sincere either way we know that he wasn't baptized until his deathbed so that's kind of interesting. And wasn't it Constantine's mom who took like self-funded pilgrimages to the Israel area and attempted to identify some of the sites from the Bible? Yes. If you go to Jerusalem or it, it, yeah, Israel, um, there's a lot of the different ancient sites that Constantine's mom was responsible for kind of like locating and building churches over as a way to preserve so it's kind of weird for us when we go to uh, Israel because it's like, oh, and in this church is built over the site where this happened or whatever. And it's like, well, that's <laughs> weird. I'd rather see the actual site. Yeah. But that was done as a means to preserve the location and not lose it. And how accurate was she? I mean, I don't know what the difference between an amateur or professional. What would that be? An archaeologist? Identifier of biblical sites. <laughs> but yeah. do we think that she did a pretty good job or some are and some are not or what? Yeah, I think, I think that overall that she did a good job. And part of that is just because of the, how early it was, I guess pretty early. 
Um, and so they had a lot of those sites. But I remember when I was in Israel, my professor saying something along the lines of, if we don't have two potential sites, then probably we're not right. So he was like, hmm. a lot of the ancient spots, it's like, we have two main like potential sites and it's got like, it's a really good chance that it's one of those two. Um, now he was kind of being joking, just saying that there's not complete certainty about a lot of those, but that it's a good chance that like one of them that we have as a potential site is the correct spot. So obviously this is a huge shift in, in Christianity because Christianity goes from being this persecuted, like neglected, mm -hmm. uh, ostracized group to more and more becoming center of the culture. So the Edict of Milan is where, you know, persecution stops, 13 or 313. And then later on, it'll become the like uh, religion of the Roman Empire. And that has a lot of effects, as you can imagine, the difference of like America, where Christianity has been kind of the center of the culture versus other countries where it's more oppressed and marginalized it has a big difference on the Christ Christians there. And people argue whether or not that's a good thing, which is, I guess it's a legitimate argument because we do see a lot of benefits that happen within the church when they're like persecuted. Um, like you have to be all in or else you're not going to be a Christian kind of mentality versus like cultural Christianity that can happen. So people talk about like, you know, the negatives and positives of Christianity taking the main stage in the Roman Empire. But I think that overall, like, that's a huge answer to prayer, I'm sure, for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about some of the impacts that it had on society, and we'll see where that goes. So one of the first things that happened is that there was tax exemption for church properties, and then a legalization of land donations. Even back then. Yeah, I know. Isn't that wild? So people could donate their land to the church. So over time, that specifically made the church really wealthy. That's essentially why we have Vatican City today, is that in the Middle Ages, the Roman church had huge amounts of land in Italy. Christianity all of a sudden was popular in society. And so with that, pros and cons, right? You, you have people that are wanting to be involved in church life for the wrong reasons. So some people would pay money in order to attain church leadership. And the word for that is simony. That comes from Simon in the Bible, who tried to pay money to receive the Holy Spirit. And that becomes a huge issue all the way up until I want to say the Reformation. Trying to pay to get some kind of like pay for spiritual growth. Basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, this is specifically to gain a position of leadership. I mean, this sort of thing still happens today where people want like leadership or authority for the wrong reasons. And you can kind of like based on who, you know, or whatever, you can get those positions. Sometimes it's like more mm -hmm. becomes more political. Mm -hmm. Another thing is there was a decree ordered that the first day of the week was to be devoted to worship. So we can in part thank Constantine for the fact that we have days where we don't have to work each week. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't recognize that the fact that we have weekends, the concept of having certain days that you don't work, it comes out of the Christian mm -hmm. worldview. Yeah, it's a great thing. Yeah. Well, what is it because of the difference of Judaism and Christianity that we end up with two days or I'm not sure how that happened. I don't know, actually, but I'll take it. So in all this, a lot of change started happening into what the church looked like because now you had this day 
of the week that was dedicated to worship and you didn't have to do it in secret anymore. Uh, churches, instead of just meeting in people's homes, they started building buildings. Ministers started wearing luxurious garments. They started being called priests at this time. And then communion table shifted to an altar. So a lot of these more ceremonious. Yeah. What's the significance of, of priest versus minister? Well, is that because it was like the word that the pagans use already? Yeah, that's what the book said, is that it was the the pagan counterpart. They used priest, so they shifted to that, which Dr. Collins is very passionate about these things, about how it's not a priest and it's not an altar. It's a minister and a communion table. And uh, we, we don't need to go back to the old covenant. We need to follow the example of Jesus. So he gets very passionate. And I think there's space for that, for sure. I think he's got legitimate. I agree. Reasons. I love it. <laughs> There's a lot of, I guess, division in the church, maybe the wrong word, but discussion. And one of the differences you see in different denominations, even if it's not like outright discussed, is like the difference between the preachers, church leaders and the people. Like Hmm. uh, some churches really have that distinction. It's like this is the pastor and this is not the pastor Mm -hmm. Um, versus like everyone ministers concept. Like we're all ministers together. And I think those are pretty significant conversations. And it even goes back way, way back to. Yeah, to here. Definitely. Yeah, I don't think that it seems like biblically it would be closer to the latter. Right. I mean, obviously you have people who are gifted or anointed to lead and to speak, teach and stuff. But it doesn't seem like there should be a too big of a distinction. Right. That's definitely what I would. My position would be what's called like the priesthood of all believers. Mm-hmm. concept where we're all called to minister that, he's using priests right there priesthood of all believers and the tradition of melchizedek and all that yeah and that that specific term is used to kind of counter the this um kind of high church model of the priest being separate from the laity but also earlier we talked about how we shouldn't be saying it's a priest because it's a minister but priest isn't necessarily just a pagan i mean paul is co-opting that already mm-hmm well, it's, I mean, priest is what they're called in Judaism. Uh, communion table, I'm not familiar with. I've never registered that term, I don't think. Basically, the communion table is focused on the believers coming together to partake in the body and blood of Christ together. And in the altar, there's more of a focus on the sacrifice of Christ. Because altar, you know, has that sacrifice. So it's like Christ's body and blood mm. broken on the altar. This is the sacrifice to God. So it's like a reenactment of Jesus's atonement on the cross. And then we then like take that. So if the concept is a communion table, does that mean you only go up to partake the Eucharist? What do you mean? Like altars at church that that I'm familiar with is where you would go to pray. This is like a communion altar, right? The center place in churches where the communion elements are. Oh, so not the place where you get on your knees on the cushion. No, not as much. Yeah, that's confusing, isn't it? Well, I think the current altar that we have is kind of another way to try to solve that a little bit, where it's like you're separating the communion table versus like the an altar where we sacrifice ourselves mm-hmm. and pray is probably has come from that as well. And sometimes the the kneeling altar has the little holes for the 
communion cups. <laughs> so that's why I thought it can be a communion table. Uh huh. <laughs> but you're talking about something totally different for that whole. These two terms are not the place where you kneel. No, but I think there's definitely connection there, and like the way that the church, like throughout history, has evolved the way that it does its services, probably all comes from that. So hmm. okay. So another thing that was happening at this time is that the churches were being overwhelmed by the number of people requesting baptism. If you remember in our conversation with Christian back in episode six, I think, we talked about catechesis, this process of the early church training people before baptism. And if you remember, he was saying that it can be up to a three-year process of teaching what it looks like to be a Christian before you're baptized. And so one of the reasons that that catechesis process was shortened is because it just was not possible for them to take the amount of time uh, with all these people that were requesting to become part of the church. Hmm. So again, there's a theme emerging here, right? Is that this is a good thing, but it also brings up challenges for the church because if you have a ton of people that are coming into the church that don't fully know what it means, then it's going to be watered down in some way. But it's great that you have thousands of people wanting to be baptized, right? Totally. You can't lose sight of the good side of Mm -hmm. it too. And so because of this, opinions were very mixed among the church leadership about how to respond to this. And in the fourth century, a lot of the most devout Christians ended up going into isolation in order to seek holiness. So this is where we get that idea of the desert fathers, monks, that whole thing. Wait, is that because they felt like too many of these new converts weren't serious enough or didn't know what they were doing? Or yeah, oh. well, there were, there were several reasons, um, but I would say mostly it was a mixture of that. And before this, if you were a serious follower of Jesus and you were dedicated, then you were likely going to be facing persecution and the highest honor, in a sense, was martyrdom. Mm. So all of a sudden, those things are completely taken away. Uh So in order to seek devout Christianity, there became this notion of kind of like denying the flesh and almost experiencing suffering by living in isolation and going through difficulties. Yeah. When you read through the New Testament, there's a lot about suffering for Christ. And Mm -hmm. in the apostolic age, the early, early church, um, that was just a par for the course. Like if you were going to be a believer, you were like, we had to be willing to die because it was a real possibility. And so now that's taken away. And so there's that question of like, well, what does this mean now that we're not suffering for Christ and our lives are not in danger? Mm -hmm. And so it became kind of self-imposed in some ways. Um, to like self-impose suffering for the sake of Christ. So this is called the monastic reaction to Constantine and the new order. So let's talk about that next. So Dr. Collins specifically talked about three, four things that led to this whole movement of monasticism. Um, first was this dualistic view of flesh and spirit being separate. And this this is a little bit tainted with uh, like Gnosticism, Neoplatonic ideas that flesh is bad, spirit is good. So uh, these people were wanting to deny the flesh. 
They were also influenced by Bible verses and early church fathers' support of celibacy. So this idea of never getting married, denying any kind of sexual pleasure. And then the last important thing was, like you said earlier, Daniel, a reaction against watering down of the church and that it was now cool in society to be a Christian. So the first famous monk that gets credited for starting this whole thing is Anthony. You guys know about Anthony? I don't. I don't remember. Yeah, I don't know much about him either, but there is a lot of... um, He's credited as the founder of anchoretic monasticism, which means you're by yourself in solitude. It started out as all in isolation, and then later people started doing this in communities. Which is where monasteries and things come from. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So Anthony goes out into the desert, and uh, people may have seen... There's a lot of interesting old artwork about him and you'll see this old guy and he's like surrounded by demons and uh it's this image that like he's going out and fighting off the evils of the world and trying to overcome the all the evil temptations and so that's the visual representation that was the idea at the time wow yeah so that's kind of the image of this whole idea so like he's going out into the wilderness because that's where he can fight the demons. Yeah, it's kind of like when you're removed from all the society, then your battle is all spiritual, right? So he's okay. able to become pure personally, which means like all of his own vices and demons are going to be defeated. Mm-hmm. That sort of concept. This isn't just a negative thing. We kind of think of monks as like crazy, crazy people that are living in caves and they were living in caves, but a lot of these people were good, devout Christians. And Anthony, for example, influenced the church in the way that he remained in contact uh, with people in, in the big cities as well. So it wasn't all negative, but there were some wild things that occurred. Um, one of my favorites was this monk named Simon, who he got he lived in a cave and he got so tired of all the crowds coming to him constantly and asking him for counsel and prayers that uh, he felt like he didn't have any time for his devotions because there were constantly pilgrims coming out and pestering him. So he ended up moving from his cave and he found a pillar and climbed on top of the pillar and is reported to have lived on the pillar for 37 years. Okay. In order to make it hard for people to get to him. (laughs) So, but people would still gather around his pillar and he would preach to them from on top. And I was looking this up on Wikipedia. This wasn't in my textbooks, but according to Wikipedia, the first, he started out on a pillar that was about 10 feet tall and then eventually moved to one that was 50 feet tall and just lived up there. How did he, and people like brought him food and stuff? Yeah, he had like a guy that would bring him food and sometimes they would like put stuff in baskets and he would hoist it up. There's also reports of a monk that buried himself in the sand up to his neck. Mm. And then there's another guy who was famous for not bathing. This sounds like Hindu stuff. Yeah, it's weird. I think one thing that's important to point out with all these issues is we have a very, like Paul was saying, there's it's not all bad. Um, like we have no. a... These are the extreme examples that I'm throwing out. I think it's easy uh, psychologically for us to make judgments like things are good or things are bad. It's just easier to categorize things that way. Yeah. And we do that like all the time in our life to like make things more simple. So, you know, this Christian movement is bad and this one's good or this preacher is good and this one's bad or whatever. 
Um, but most of the time it's going to be nuanced and there are some real yeah. positives that came out of monasticism, but then there's some like really weird, definitely weird negative things mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Well, and later on in the middle ages, we may get to this in the, in a future episode, but really the, all of education, formal education came out of monasticism and a lot of the missionary movements, the teachers, well, we talked about the rule of life last episode and that comes from Benedict. So definitely good and bad. Not bathing would be an example of the bad. That's right. (laughs) Maybe he didn't have to worry about the crowds. (laughs) So anyway, just an interesting uh, cultural reaction to this shift in Christianity. So there were a lot of really influential controversies in the church that led to important doctrine that we now hold to, but probably the most important one was the Arian controversy that led to the Council of Nicaea in 325. I thought that one would be the most important to touch on. Yeah, I think so too. Um, So big picture stuff again, this era of the church is when Christianity is becoming the norm and culture and being like the main religious establishment. And so you have the monastic orders being developed. And then there's these different church councils. The church is coming together to try to be unified on what it's teaching. So you have these different controversies or different debates going on. And so Constantine originally like called the Council of Nicaea to be like, all right, we want to be unified and all know what we believe. So let's get all the church leaders together to one place and like hash it out and figure out what is the appropriate teaching of the church. Yeah, which is really significant because it was the very first council where everybody was there. We call it a ecumenical council. Yeah, which ecumenical means like worldwide church. Mm-hmm. Daniel, do you know anything about the Council of Nicaea? Is that where the Nicene Creed comes from? Yeah then I can't think of anything else I would know about it. The Nicene Creed is really the most important thing. So Yeah, okay. <laughs> you hit what people should remember about it. That's right. So this started because there was a big debate down in Alexandria, Egypt, between the pastor there whose name was Alexander, thankfully, makes it really easy to remember, and uh, one of the main church members named Arius. And so they got into this big debate. Arius was saying that Jesus, the word of God, was not co-eternal with God, but was the first created thing. And Alexander was saying, no, Uh, Jesus is God. So this is a step towards establishing the Trinitarian doctrine. That's right. It's a step towards solidifying it. Yeah. That... The idea of one God, three persons had already been established by Tertullian in the third century. Um, But this helps to solidify what the church believes on it. Yeah. And so this uh, comes from in the Bible concept of Jesus being the son and begotten of the father and all that kind of stuff. Which Arius was taking to mean that it was a creation of God. That's right. That. The first creative, like the first thing that G- that God did in creation was create the sun. Which is still what the Jehovah's Witnesses say. Right. Jehovah's Witnesses still believe that Jesus is like creation of the Father. Yeah, which is kind of wild that that's still an issue after all these years. On Alexander's side, it was really important that God 
had saved us by entering into human history. Rather than just by sending somebody. Exactly. It was him restoring our way back to him. Um, But for Arius and his followers, they felt that what was significant is that Jesus opened the way for our salvation by his obedience to God. So do they they find that more aspirational then? Yeah, I think they felt like if it was God, then I guess he wasn't demonstrating obedience because it was him. And the beauty of the Trinitarian theology is that it's both. Right. <laughs> One thing that I'll mention real quick, just as far as this controversy mm-hmm. goes, uh, you know, it's talking about the divinity of Christ and what does that mean for Christ, for Jesus to be God. That's like what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. And one argument that I hear today from like the people who are antagonistic toward Christianity is like this idea of God killing his son for the sake of humanity. And like, oh, how barbaric is this that God is killing his own son and um, in order to save other people. And it's almost like trying to paint God in a cruel light. But if you understand that Jesus is God, it becomes self-sacrifice mm-hmm. rather than mm-hmm. God like choosing to sacrifice somebody yeah. else. And so I think that's really important uh, for us to understand that in Jesus, God chose to take the punishment upon himself, not like God chose to put the punishment from us to somebody else, you know? Yeah, that's really good. And so... Because this was such a huge issue, like Joel said, Constantine called together the whole church to come and talk about it. And out of this, like Daniel said, we get the Nicene Creed. So I thought it'd be good to read that one. I know for me growing up in church, I really wasn't very familiar with this creed. Um, The only creed I can remember doing in church was the Apostles' Creed. Mm -hmm. But uh, the Nicene Creed is actually the most universally accepted Christian creed. And so it's uh, really important for Christians to be aware of this because it unites every Christian all around the world, whether you're Catholic or Eastern Orthodox or Coptic or Russian Orthodox, whatever strain you're in, these are the things that we can agree and be unified on. And now the Nicene Creed that we have now, I think it was a little bit adjusted after this first council. There were some things that they continued to debate on. So the version that we'll read is probably a little bit uh, adjusted, right? Yeah, you're talking about the clause, filioque. So there was like a finalized version at a later council, but basic, basically it came from this first council to unify the church and say, this is what it means to be a Christian. You believe these things. So they added to it later. Yeah, just a little bit, basically. Because um, of the next main council, which I don't know that we'll get into, they talked a lot about the divinity of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so in the original, they don't? Mm-hmm. Oh, no, it says and in the Holy Ghost. It still had it, but it wasn't um, as developed, I guess. You can really see when we read through the Nicene Creed, there's a lot of emphasis on Jesus and like who Jesus is because that was the issue that they were initially addressing. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, yeah, let's read the one from the Council of Nicaea. Okay. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is, of the essence of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, by whom all things were made, both in heaven and on earth, who for us men and for our salvation came down and was incarnate and made man, and was made man. 
He suffered, and the third day he rose again, ascended into heaven. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead, and in the Holy Ghost. But those who say there was a time when he was not, and he was not before he was made, and he was made out of nothing, or he is of another substance, or essence, or the Son of God created, or changeable, or alterable, they are condemned by the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. There you go. So that's the first uh, Nicene Creed. Um, and you can tell that they're uh, specifically addressing this controversy of the person of Jesus being the same essence of the Father and not of a similar essence, but the same essence. Yeah, that was the big deal then. And like Joel said, there was another, the second ecumenical council was called in 381, which had some other emphasis. And so our modern day Nicene Creed comes out of that. But this was the basis. Yeah, so there's seven major uh, councils in this kind of era of the church. And so the first one is this Council of Nicaea. Second one is the Council of Constantinople. And that really like finalized the Nicene Creed into the form that we have today. Like I said, they talked more about the Holy Spirit and wanted to clarify that the Holy Spirit was divine in the same way that Jesus is and the same way that God Mm -hmm. is. And so that was one of the things that they discussed at that time and added into the creed. Yeah. So takeaway, if you're a Christian listening to this, you should be aware of the creeds. This is a important thing for all Christians to know about, especially the Nicene Creed. I guess the Apostles' Creed, too, mm-hmm. wouldn't you say? And where did that come from? That was a Roman baptismal creed. So that was something they would say right before uh, they performed a baptism, and then it evolved out of that. It's pretty similar. It's older. And it has, like, less theological language. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a, little bit, it's a little bit more simple. So the Council of Nicaea was, like, an official vote against Arianism. There was only like a couple people in the council that voted on his side. It was a vast majority were in support of the divinity of Christ, that he's co-eternal with the Father. Mm-hmm. Um, but that doesn't mean that that like nobody believed that from that point on. It still was like an issue in the church and at other councils it continued to be brought up. But this was like the church's official stance against it. Yeah, it continued for a long time actually to be uh-huh. an issue. And so as you go through church history, you start to realize that most of the clarity that we have on church doctrine comes out of debates and disputes and heresies. Yep. So yeah, any sort of theological issue, it has that positive element. So you take a like big debated issue in the church today, like, uh, can you lose your salvation? Right. And so people begin debating this and some people are like, oh, this is divisive, which it can be. But then it causes Christians to look through the scripture in a detailed way and really try to see like, what does the Bible say about this? in hopes to establish like a biblical opinion. Yeah, consensus. Yeah, consensus. Mm -hmm. And um, as Christians today, we don't have a lot of debate about the divinity of Christ. That's like something that we're taught Mm -hmm. and it's like established. And so we don't have to deal with it, I guess, (laughs) because it's been decided. Yeah, we stand on and kind of take for granted just a lot of these things that were big issues and took a lot of work to figure out. There are way too many important, interesting people that we could talk about from this period, but I thought at least we should say something about Augustine. Yes. Because he's probably the most influential. What are your thoughts on Augustine? He's also called Augustine. Yeah. Why Why do people pronounce that differently? It comes from you a know. different language, right? Yeah. I mean, I've heard people say that it's one way and other people say it's the other way. 
So I don't know if there's like a specific, we know that it was pronounced a certain way or not. My professor also said Constantine instead of Constantine, which I had never heard. So, well, anyway, that's beside the point. Yeah. Daniel, <laughs> do you know anything about Augustine? Augustine? Uh, obviously, I've heard his name invoked a lot in all kinds of sermons or discussions about the faith. Um, let's see. Sometimes it's said to have Christianized Plato, I think, mm. but I don't think I could tell you. Uh, he's the one who said, make me chase, but not yet, right? I don't know. Sounds right. Cause I yeah, know. I think he said there was a time in his life where he would pray, oh, Lord, make me chase, but not yet or something like that. Um, I think he was the one who said that. I don't know. Oh, that does sound right. Yeah. No, I'm, I think that's him too, because in his uh, like autobiography, he talked a lot about his struggle with sexual sin. Okay. So Augustine was born in 354 in North Africa. So he's after the stuff we've been talking about, the whole Arian controversy that we were just discussing, that Council of Nicaea we said was 325. Um, so he's coming in a little later. If you, yeah, what you need to know about him, we'll get into it some, but he's like the giant of theological discussion and writing for this era. Mm-hmm. Like really started writing about some like doctrine and mm-hmm. theological perspective. Yeah, and because we all come from the Western church, because as Protestants, we stem out of Roman Catholicism and not Eastern Orthodoxy, he really influenced especially the West. So a lot of our theology comes from from Augustine. Augustine. I never know how to say his name. Uh, I will say that I think Augustine sounds better, personally. Okay, we can go with that. I mean, Augustine doesn't sound bad, but it sounds like it makes me think of Augustus Gloop. (laughs) Uh, So a little backstory on him. Well, his father was a Roman official and a pagan. His mother was a Christian. He was recognized by his parents to be brilliant from a young age. So he was really well educated, but also lived a very worldly heathen lifestyle. So he had a very um, radical conversion, which he writes about and... I thought it might actually be fun to read a snippet of his conversion. Sure. So uh, he's in this process of seeking God and seeking truth. And it was a pretty long process for him. This comes at the climax of that. And so he's distraught in seeking God. He writes, I flung myself down under a fig tree and gave free course to my tears. The streams of my eyes gushed out an acceptable sacrifice to thee and not indeed in these words but to this effect i cried to thee and thou o lord how long how long o lord will thou be angry forever oh remember not against us our former iniquities for i felt that i was still enthralled by them i sent up these sorrowful cries how long how long tomorrow and tomorrow why not now why not this very hour make an end to my uncleanness I was saying these things and weeping when suddenly I heard a voice of a boy or a girl, I know not which, coming from the neighboring house, chanting over and over again, pick it up, read it, pick it up, read it. And immediately I ceased weeping and began most earnestly to think whether it was usual for children in some kind of game to sing such a song. But I could not remember ever having heard it. 
So damning the torrent of my tears, I got to my feet, for I could not but think that this was a divine command to open the Bible and read the first passage I should lay my eyes upon. So I quickly returned to my bench where Alpheus was sitting, for there I had put down the apostle's book when I had left. I snatched it up, opened it, and in silence read the paragraph on which my eyes first fell. And it's Romans 13, 13. One of you guys want to read that first? Uh, it says, let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. And he goes on, but I just wanted to share that because I feel like it's encouraging to hear a testimony of how God was working to somebody back in the early church and it's just cool to see how it's similar to how God works in our lives today. And that's cool because there's the um, vision element, right? Like God called him in a supernatural way, but then he just used the scripture. Mm. And how often like the Bible verse is what opens people's eyes, how powerful just mm. like the words of scripture are. Yeah. And then his other most famous work is the city of God, which is a response to the collapse of Rome, people saying that the reason Rome was collapsing is because they abandoned paganism and became Christian. So Augustine wrote this as a response to talk about, no, there's these two cities. There's the city of light, city of darkness, and comparing and contrasting heavenly things with worldly things. I haven't read either of those, but I'm sure it'd be difficult, but very interesting. <laughs> A speaker that we had last year come to harvest talked about augustine was a shift in the christian dialogue in a way from the focus being around like the nature of the trinity to talking more about salvation like mm -hmm. how are we saved and what does it mean to be saved um was kind mm -hmm. of a, a shift that took place around his writings and he was saying that there is positive and negatives to that um mm -hmm. that yeah. there's a lot of there was a lot of positives just focusing on who is god right? How does Jesus relate to the Father? Then moving kind of toward conversation on like, how are we saved? What does it mean to be saved? Um, and the reason that comes up goes back to what we were saying about controversy and dispute, um, because one of the main reasons Augustine was writing is he was writing against Pelagianism. And Pelagianism said that, very simplified, that we could be saved by works. Uh, that we could be good enough to merit salvation. Augustine fought very strongly against that, which, like Joel said, had the focus more on what we do as humans. And this is also where some of the very early ideas that led to predestination started to come into play. Another of his notable contributions is just war theory, which if you have anything to do with ethics, that comes into play a lot. When can war be just and what are the criteria that go into that? Yeah, yeah. So one other important figure to mention real quick is Jerome, uh, which is around the same time as Augustine. And Jerome translated the Bible into Latin, which was called the Vulgate. And that was published in 400, I think. And so this kind of became like the main scripture that was used for the next, uh, probably until the King James Bible. Like it was like the, the main text because uh, Latin was like the primary language of, of the educated people at the time. So Jerome established that and which is anytime there's like a big major translation of the Bible, that's an important moment in Christian history. 
Yeah, and he's a really interesting character, too, if you're into this kind of thing. Because he actually started out going out into the desert as well uh, to try to escape his lustful desires and sin and all that. And so eventually he uh, turned to translating scripture as a way to occupy his mind and serve God. I think the most important thing about him is that his translation was directly from the Hebrew um, instead of from the Greek Septuagint. He was also kind of rude from what I remember. (laughs) They said about Martin Luther also. Yeah, so he was, Jerome was fluent in Greek, which means he could translate the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, and the New Testament, which is in Greek. But then when he really started translating the whole Bible, he moved to Jerusalem in order to strengthen his uh, knowledge of Hebrew so that he could translate the Old Testament from Hebrew as well. So a nice clean way that we can mark the end of this era is the fall of Rome. So Rome was sacked in 410 by Alaric and the Goths. We didn't mention earlier, but Constantine had moved the capital city to Constantinople over in the east, which is modern-day Istanbul. And uh, since he had done that, the western side in Rome had gradually become weaker and weaker and more vulnerable. And so eventually that did lead to Rome being overrun. And so in this next era of church history, you have flood of all these barbarians is what the Romans would have called them. And uh, I'll read a little section from the textbook just to mark this transition. This is Gonzalez's story of Christianity. He said, many of the invaders were pagan and therefore the conquered felt the need to teach their faith to the victors. Slowly, through the unrecorded witness of thousands of Christians, the invaders accepted the Christian faith and eventually from their stock came new generations of church leaders. That's really cool. That gives you a good perspective on bad things like that happening. Yeah, and how God uses it, you mean? Yeah. Uh, He says... Furthermore, since many of the invaders had previously been converted to Arian Christianity, the issue of Arianism, which had been considered virtually dead for decades, once again came to the forefront in the West, where Arianism had never been a real issue. So again, this controversy we discussed earlier because Arian missionaries had gone to these people groups prior. That's why that's happening. Eventually... All of these Aryan people would come to accept the Nicene faith, but this would not be done without a great deal of struggle and suffering. Out of all of this, a new civilization would arise, one which was heir to classic Greco-Roman antiquity as well as to Christianity and to Germanic tradition. Germic and to Germanic traditions. This process took the thousands of years known as the Middle Ages to which we now turn and to which we will discuss if we do another church history episode. Okay, everybody, welcome to the post-show Daniel's talk hour. We have a little bit of a longer episode today. We'll see how uh, how long it turns out to be after the edit, but learned a lot of new things. Um, there may be some of you listeners out there who already knew everything we talked about, in which case, uh, 
kudos to you. Why don't you like, comment, and subscribe, and you can comment uh, the things that we should have mentioned. I was a little disappointed in myself for how much I've forgotten because I definitely learned more, uh, especially about Augustine in the past, but I hardly remember anything now. But that's uh, that's the way it goes sometimes when you're not using it in your in your life. That's one depressing thing about education at all is what sticks with you and what just kind of fades off depending on, I don't know, whether you really internalize it or not and whether you use it. But the good thing is you can always go back and relearn things or learn things for the first time or remember things by looking it up again or talking to people who are using it in their lives. And I think there's rarely a a true point of no return for those kind of things. Um, So we'll continue learning new things together. And again, if anyone has clear ideas of things that would enhance this conversation, then we'd love to hear about it and uh, try to touch upon those down the road. Bye. I wonder if this is going to make the edit.